This prophecy is repeated in Matthew 24:34, where Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, This generation shall not pass away till all these things be accomplished. Concerning this last statement and the meaning of the word generation, Dr. Murray says, The meaning of this sentence seems quite obvious, but it is difficult to see how all these things were really fulfilled during the lifetime of that generation. Some interpreters have tried to overcome this obstacle by substituting the idea of race, nation, stock, or family for generation. They insist that what Jesus really meant was that the Jews as a race would not pass away until these things should be accomplished. The Schofield Reference Bible states that the Greek word genea, translated generation, means race, kind, family, stock, or breed. A quote from page 1034. To this, Dr. Schofield adds, parenthetically, so all lexicons. It may be that some lexicons support this opinion, but certainly not all lexicons. We have before us Thayer's Greek-English Lexicon of the New Testament, a very able and reliable work in this field. On page 112 of this volume, it is distinctly stated that the word genea, translated generation in Matthew 28.36 and Matthew 24.34, means the Jewish race at one and the same period, or the whole multitude of men at the same time. This interpretation seems both obvious and reasonable. He continues, It may be profitable and convincing to the reader to see how the word generation is used in other parts of Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew 1.17 we read, So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations and from David unto the carrying away to Babylon are fourteen generations, and from the carrying away to Babylon unto the Christ are fourteen generations. Here one finds the same Greek word used, but no one would suggest that it be translated fourteen races, kinds, families, stocks, or breeds. In Matthew 11:16, Jesus said, But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is plain to anyone that he is speaking of the people then living and describing their attitude towards John the Baptist and himself. Again in Matthew 12, verses 39-43, Jesus speaks of an adulterous generation and says that the men of Nineveh and the Queen of the South shall rise against it. The men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah and a greater than Jonah preached to that generation. The queen of the south came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and a greater than Solomon was available to that generation. In each case, Jesus Christ is using the word generation to describe his contemporaries, and we question seriously if in any of the four Gospels the word is used with any other meaning. This then should convince us beyond a doubt that our Lord is not speaking of a race, but he is speaking of a people living at that time when he says, Verily I say unto you, This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. We take the position that Matthew 24:34, in which our Lord speaks of the generation then living, is the time text of the chapter, and that our Lord's predictions up to that point have to do with the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in the year 70 A.D., all his predictions concerning that notable event are clear and definite. A quote from Millennial Studies, pages 109 and 110. 
the siege and destruction of Jerusalem. What then were the events that occurred during the siege of Jerusalem and the final breakup of the Jewish nation, the events concerning which Christ said, For then shall be great tribulation, such as hath not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, nor ever shall be. The climax came in the year 70 A.D. at Passover time with people from all the nation gathered in Jerusalem, when in a spasm of maniacal fervor, which undoubtedly was as sincere as it was hopelessly impossible of accomplishment, the Jews decided to cast off the Roman yoke. The city was crowded with people from all parts of Palestine. Our primary source of information is the famous history written by Josephus, who, as we have said, was a Jew and an eyewitness of the destruction of Jerusalem. His works, The Antiquities of the Jews and The Wars of the Jews, have been preserved. They are considered reliable by competent historians, and his account of the long and fiercely contested siege and fall of the city corresponds to such a time of tribulation as Christ said would befall the city. He was an educated Pharisee and had been appointed governor of Galilee. After a valiant defense against the Roman army in Galilee before the siege of Jerusalem began, he was forced to surrender. However, he succeeded in ingratiating himself with the Roman general Titus, who was impressed with his ability and his sincerity, and who used him as a mediator between himself and the Jews during the latter part of the campaign. It was in this capacity that he was present at the siege of Jerusalem. He was later given his freedom and went to Rome where his literary work was done. He was not a Christian and so cannot be accused of having written with any idea of favoring the Christians. Concerning his fellow Jews, Josephus said, I shall therefore speak my mind here at once briefly, that neither did any other city ever suffer such miseries, nor did any age ever breed a generation more fruitful of wickedness than this was from the beginning of the world. A quote from War of the Jews, Book 5, Chapter 10, Section 5. He says that 1,100,000 people perished during the long and fiercely contested siege and that 97,000 survivors were sold as slaves. Book 6, Chapter 9, Section 3 The temple was destroyed and the city was razed to the ground. Now this vast multitude, he says, was indeed collected out of remote places, but the entire nation was now shut up by fate as in a prison and the Roman army encompassed the city when it was crowded with inhabitants. Accordingly, the multitude of those that perished therein exceeded all the destructions that either man or God ever brought upon the world. Volume 6, Chapter 9, Section 4 It was by that event that the national existence of the Jews came to an end. Since that time, the exiles have been scattered all over the world with no national unity until very recent times when a small minority of them set up a new government in Palestine, 1948. During all those years, however, they maintained their racial existence despite many hardships and much persecution. In long-continued suffering, their lot is unparalleled in the experience of any other people. We take no pleasure in recording the terribleness of the siege, and we include such an account only with reluctance in order to show what actually did happen and how literally this fulfilled the prophecy that Christ made concerning the Great Tribulation. 
In order to understand what actually happened, it is necessary to keep in mind that during the siege, the greater part of the suffering and horror was caused by the Jews themselves. Their feeling that they were the chosen people and that they would be rescued by divine intervention, that indeed God would have to intervene in order to protect his temple, caused them to neglect to do those things which under normal conditions would have been considered good military tactics and sound judgment. When they were in such extremity and were daily expecting a mighty deliverance, it became extremely easy for false prophets and false Christs to impose upon them, as Christ had said they would. As conditions grew steadily worse, and it finally dawned upon them that no divine help was coming, the sense of abandonment and despair led to such crimes against each other as otherwise never would have been perpetrated or tolerated. The besieged people broke into three vicious rival factions which fought against each other, and robbed and tortured and slaughtered those who refused to join their factions. Unmentionable crimes were committed, and the aged and women and children suffered so much from this internal war that they longed for the Romans to come and deliver them. Even the temple became a battleground for this internecine warfare, and hundreds of dead bodies were strewn throughout its chambers. This caused Josephus to write, O most wretched city, what misery so great as this didst thou suffer from the Romans when they came to purify thee from thy intestine hatred? For thou couldst be no longer a place fit for God, nor couldst thou long continue in being after thou hadst been a sepulchre for the bodies of thy own people and hadst made the holy house itself a burying place in this civil war of thine. Volume 5, Chapter 1, Section 3 The account by Josephus continues. The madness of the seditious did also increase together with the famine, and both these miseries were every day inflamed more and more. Many there were indeed who sold what they had for one measure. It was of wheat, if they were of the richer sort, but of barley, if they were poorer. When these had so done, they shut themselves up in the inmost rooms of their house and ate the corn they had gotten. The famine was too hard for all other passions, and it is destructive to nothing so much as to modesty, for what was otherwise worthy of reverence was in this case despised, insomuch that children pulled the very morsels that their fathers were eating out of their mouths. And what was still more to be pitied, so did the mothers do as to their infants, and when those that were most dear were perishing under their hands, they were not ashamed to take from them the very last drops that might preserve their lives. And while they ate after this manner, yet were they not concealed in so doing. But the seditious everywhere came upon them immediately and snatched away from them what they had gotten from others. For when they saw any house shut up, this was to them a signal that the people had within gotten some food whereupon they broke down the doors and ran in and took of what they were eating almost out of their very throats, and this by force. The old men who held their food fast were beaten, and if the women hid what they had within their hands, their hair was torn for so doing. Nor was there any commiseration shown either to the aged or the infants, but they lifted up children from the ground as they hung upon the morsels they had gotten and shook them down upon the floor." but still they were more barbarously cruel to those that had prevented their coming in and had actually swallowed down what they were going to seize upon, as if they had been unjustly defrauded of their right. 
They also invented terrible methods of torture to discover where any food was. Book 5, Chapter 10, Sections 2 and 3 Now the seditious at first gave orders that the dead should be buried out of the public treasury, as not enduring the stench of their dead bodies. But afterward, when they could not do that, they had them cast down from the walls into the valley beneath. However, when Titus, in going his rounds among these valleys, saw them full of dead bodies and the thick putrefaction, called God to witness that this was not his doing, and such was the sad case of the city itself. Josephus records an event concerning a wealthy and cultured woman which will show that the language of Jesus was not too extravagant when he foretold the terrible tribulation that would befall the city. This woman at first had much food, but was robbed until she had nothing. She cursed the villains who robbed her, but to no avail. Josephus continues, She then attempted a most unnatural thing, and snatching up her son, who was a child sucking at her breast, she said, O thou miserable infant, for whom shall I preserve thee in this war, this famine, this sedition? As to the war with the Romans, if they preserve our lives, we must be slaves. This famine also will destroy us even before that slavery comes upon us. Yet are these seditious rogues more terrible than both the other. Come on, be thou my food, and be thou a fury to these seditious varlets, and a byword to the world, which is all that is now wanting to complete the calamities of the Jews. And as soon as she had said this, she slew her son and roasted him, and ate the one half of him, and kept the other half by her concealed. Upon this the seditious came presently, and smelling the horrid scent of this food, they threatened her that they would cut her throat immediately if she did not show them what food she had gotten already. She replied that she had saved a very fine portion of it for them, and withal uncovered what was left of her son. Hereupon they were seized with a horror and amazement of mind, and stood astonished at the sight, when she said to them, This is mine own son, and what hath been done was my own doing. Come, eat of this my food, for I have eaten of it myself. Do you not pretend to be either more tender than a woman, or more compassionate than a mother? But if you be so scrupulous and do abominate this my sacrifice, as I have eaten the one half, let the rest be reserved for me. After which those men went out trembling, being never so much affrighted at anything as they were as at this, and with some difficulty they left the rest of that meat to the mother. Book 6, Chapter 3, Section 4 Josephus says that in the latter stages of the siege, the Romans, angered at what they considered the unduly long and stubborn resistance of the city, crucified Jews until they could no longer find wood to make crosses. Concerning those who tried to escape from the city, he says, When they were going to be taken, they were forced to defend themselves for fear of being punished. But after they had fought, they thought it too late to make any supplication for mercy. So they were first whipped and tormented with all sorts of tortures before they died, and were then crucified before the walls of the city. This miserable procedure made Titus greatly to pity them, while they caught every day five hundred Jews. Nay, some days they caught more. Yet did it not appear to be safer for him to let those taken by force go their way, and to set a guard over so many, he saw would be to make such as guarded them useless to him. 
So the soldiers, out of the wrath and hatred they bore the Jews, nailed those they caught, one after one way, and another another way to the crosses, by way of jest. When their multitude was so great that room was wanting for the crosses, and crosses wanting for the bodies. Book 5, Chapter 11, Section 1 He continues, Now the number of those that were carried captive during this whole war was collected to be ninety. 7,000, as was the number of those that perished in the whole siege, 1,100,000, the greater part of whom were indeed of the same nation, but not belonging to the city itself. For they were come up from all the country to the feast of unleavened bread, and were on a sudden shut up by an army. Book 6, Chapter 9, Section 3 Some of those who tried to escape from the city swallowed pieces of gold before leaving, in order to take it with them. Says Josephus, Yet did another plague seize upon those that were thus preserved, for the deserters used to swallow pieces of gold. But when this contrivance was discovered in one instance, the fame of it filled the several camps, that the deserters came to them full of gold. So the multitude of the Arabians with the Syrians cut up those who came as supplicants and searched their inwards. Nor does it seem to me that any misery befell the Jews that was more terrible than this, since in one night's time about two thousand of those deserters were thus massacred. As the Romans fought their way into the city and the last pockets of resistance were overcome, further horrors were inflicted on the people. The temple was burned and torn down, thus fulfilling the words of Jesus, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Matthew 24, verse 2 As a final gesture of contempt, the Romans even plowed the ground where the city stood. The entire surviving remnant of the people was sold into slavery. Jesus had wept over the city because he foresaw the judgment that was coming upon it. It was his foreknowledge of that event, as he was led out of the city to be crucified, that caused him to say to the women of Jerusalem, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Luke 23:28. In accordance with our view that Matthew 24 foretold the coming destruction of Jerusalem and not a future tribulation of the end time, the words of Jesus in verse 28 have special significance. Wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. The eagle was then the symbol of Roman power, as it is today the symbol of American power, and as the lion is of British power. It was carried by the different units of the Roman army. It was over the governor's palace. Wherever Roman authority was exercised, there the eagle was in evidence. Hence the reference in the words of Jesus was readily understood. It found its fulfillment in that, in the year 70 A.D., the Roman eagles gathered at the city of Jerusalem and devoured the carcass of apostate Judaism. One of the most remarkable events in connection with the fall of Jerusalem was the escape of the Christians from the city before the siege began. Nearly forty years earlier Jesus had foretold this destruction and had made provision for the escape of his people. He had given them a sign by which they were to know when to flee and had said, But when ye see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that her desolation is at hand. Luke 21.20 And again, 
When therefore ye see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let him that readeth understand, then let them that are in Judea flee into the mountains, for then shall be great tribulation, such as hath not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, nor ever shall be. Matthew 24, verses 15 and 21. History informs us that the Christians took the invasion of the Roman armies as the appointed sign and made their escape to Pella, a village east of the Jordan, about 15 miles south of the Sea of Galilee, and that none of them perished. Thousands of the Jews from the other parts of the country fled into Asia Minor, Egypt, and various parts of Europe. In the year 135 AD, after another incipient revolt, the emperor Hadrian completed the work of driving practically all Jews out of Palestine. It is a far cry from Moses to Josephus, yet that which God speaking through Moses said would come upon a disobedient people, Deuteronomy chapter 28, had its fulfillment in detail and was recorded by an historian who, without thought of what God had promised, simply reported what he saw with his own eyes. Truly that was the time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah 30 verse 7 as it was also the great tribulation of Daniel's prophecy and of Matthew 24. It fulfilled our Lord's prophecy and the point that really proves the argument beyond all successful contradiction is the statement that this generation shall not pass away till all these things be accomplished. Matthew 24 34 It was also clearly predicted that believers were to escape that great tribulation not, as the dispensationalists tell us, by being raptured into the air, but by fleeing for their lives to the mountains, which they did. Premillennialists of both schools relate the prophecy concerning the Great Tribulation to a future period, holding that it occurs at the very end of the age, and are so blind to the fact that it already has been fulfilled literally in the year 70 A.D. It is significant that while the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke which were written before the destruction of Jerusalem, contain prophecies regarding the Great Tribulation. The Gospel of John, which was written in the year 95 A.D., or 25 years after that event, makes no mention of it at all. Had the prophecy related to the end of the age, John undoubtedly would have mentioned such an important event. The fact that he omitted any reference to it is a strong indication that he regarded it as fulfilled. Clearly the great tribulation of which Jesus spoke is a matter of history. Surely that tribulation was horrible enough, and surely we do not need to put the poor Jews or humanity at large through another, and if more possible, even greater tribulation at the end of the age. We call attention also to the completely disproportionate emphasis that the premillennial system places on the book of Revelation. For according to that interpretation, chapters 4 through 19, a total of 16 chapters, are used to describe the comparatively short seven-year tribulation, while only six verses in chapter 20 are used to describe the glorious 1,000-year reign of Christ upon the earth, with all the great and mighty events that undoubtedly would happen during that time. Such a method of interpretation is absurd on the face of it. The order should at least be reversed. There have been, of course, other periods of tribulation or suffering in which greater numbers of people were involved 
and which continued for longer periods of time. But considering the physical, moral, and religious aspects, suffering never reached a greater degree of awfulness and intensity than in the siege of Jerusalem. Nor have so many people ever perished in the fall of any other city. We think of the atomic bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima as causing the greatest mass horror of anything in modern times. Yet only about one-tenth as many people were killed in Hiroshima as in the fall of Jerusalem. Add to the slaughter of such a great number of bestiality of Jew to Jew and of Roman to Jew and the anguish of a people who knew they were forsaken of God and see the justification for Christ's words. For then shall be great tribulation such as hath not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, nor ever shall be. Further considerations. But while we reject the idea of a great tribulation at the end of the age, and hold that the one spoken of by Moses and Daniel and in the Gospels had its fulfillment in the destruction of Jerusalem, we nevertheless find that there are many tribulations, that the life of a Christian in this present world is, in a sense, a continuing tribulation. We have cited Christ's words, In the world ye have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. John 16.33 And Paul's admonition that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22 In the first chapter of the Revelation, John addresses himself to his readers as follows. I, John, your brother and partaker with you in the tribulation and kingdom and patience which are in Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 9 In other words, the tribulation was then in progress, and John and the Christians to whom he was writing were partakers in it, as also are we and all Christians who have lived and suffered for their faith since that time. Concerning the saints in the intermediate state, John wrote, These are they that have come out of the great tribulation, and they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Chapter 7, verse 14 Philip Morrow has well said, The tribulation saints of the future system are altogether an imaginary company, and we, the Lord's people of this dispensation, are the true tribulation saints. The dispensational system in teaching that believers are not to pass through the great tribulation, but are to be raptured away from it, merely helps to close the eyes of the saints to the real meaning and importance of the tribulation through which they are now passing. One reason that it is so difficult for some people to realize that the Great Tribulation had its fulfillment in the siege and fall of Jerusalem is that they do not fully appreciate what a tremendously important event and what a landmark in history the breakup and abolition of the Old Testament economy really was. For a period of 1,500 years God had worked with and through the Jewish people exclusively in matters pertaining to salvation. This had set Israel off very sharply from all the other nations. The law, as given on Mount Sinai, had rigidly regulated the form of their religion and thinking and conduct. They had been God's chosen people to the exclusion of all others, except as some few individuals came into the nation and accepted their religion. But with the advent of Messiah, all of that was ended. The passing away of the old order was an event of such great significance that in speaking of it, Jesus, in Matthew 24, 
uses language which, if read hurriedly or carelessly, can be misunderstood as describing events at the end of the world. It should be added that our millennialists and some postmillennialists also teach that there is to be a tribulation period immediately preceding the close of the present age, although they do not go to the extreme of the dispensationalists who assert that all of the book of Revelation from chapters 4 to 19 inclusive is a description of that period. Dr. Burkhoff, for instance, says that the passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke undoubtedly found a partial fulfillment in the days preceding the destruction of Jerusalem, but will evidently have a fulfillment in the future in a tribulation far surpassing anything that has ever been experienced. Matthew 24:21 and Mark 13:19. Paul also speaks of the great apostasy in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, and 2 Timothy 3, verse 13. He already saw something of that spirit of apostasy in his own day, but clearly wants to impress upon his readers that it will assume much greater proportions in the last days. A quote from Systematic Theology, page 700. Dr. Murray also looks for tribulation at the end, but not the great tribulation of the dispensationalists. He says, for the sake of better understanding, it might be plainly stated that we do not deny that there shall be great tribulation toward the end of the gospel age. Those who have spiritual discernment can already hear the rumblings which betoken the loosening of an avalanche of apostasy. As it gains momentum, life will become increasingly difficult for those who remain steadfast in the faith and loyal to Jesus Christ. Some of them are already paying a price for their devotion to him. The present church, he continues, is gradually but surely concentrating its endeavors on carnal organization, which shall presumably embrace all of Christendom. The indications of ecclesiastical regimentation are everywhere in evidence. The question of questions is whether the world organization shall be under the direction of Christ or of Antichrist. The history of ecclesiastical mergers does not justify the hope of world revival under a world church. The alternative is worldwide apostasy. A quote from Millennial Studies, page 130. We have already given our reasons for believing that the references in Matthew, Mark, and Luke relate to the destruction of Jerusalem. We do not believe that any further events are needed for their completion. Similarly, Paul's references to late times in which some shall fall away from the faith, 1 Timothy 4 verse 1, and his statement that in the last days grievous times shall come, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1, applied primarily to problems of his own day, as is shown by his admonition to Timothy to put the brethren in mind of these things, 1 Timothy 4 verse 6, and in his second epistle, after enumerating the things that he has in mind, he admonishes Timothy, From these also turn away. Chapter 3, verse 5 And surely the sufferings that were endured by the Christians during the first centuries under the Roman emperors, by the Protestants during the Spanish and Italian inquisitions, and by the Huguenots in France, resulting as they did in the death of thousands and in the torture and exile of countless other thousands, make present-day indications of any coming tribulation insignificant by comparison.
And while it is to be admitted that today there is too much ecclesiastical regimentation, the moves that have been made toward establishing a world church do not indicate to us that we are heading into a tribulation period of the end time. Surely the world church that existed at the time of the Reformation must have looked far more imposing and domineering and dangerous to Luther and Calvin and the other evangelicals of that day than does anything that we see now. Also the established church in the days of John Wesley with its dead formalism and lack of spiritual life must have looked the same way to Wesley and his followers. As regimentation develops in the established churches, invariably smaller groups break off and grow, and in time revival comes. We believe that the Great Tribulation is long since past. We also believe that the indications of spiritual growth throughout the church today are much more promising than they have been in any previous period of history. Chapter 5, page 206, The Antichrist One of the distinguishing marks of premillennialism is that its adherents all believe in the appearing of a personal antichrist shortly before the second coming of Christ. This character is thought to be a wicked, secular, or ecclesiastical ruler who is referred to by that name in the first and second epistles of John, who in the book of Revelation is termed the beast or the false prophet and who is the same as the man of sin described by Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It is said that he is to live in the very last days of the present dispensation, and that he will be exalting himself on the earth at the time Christ returns to set up his millennial kingdom. Premillennialism usually holds, too, that the Roman Empire is to be revived, and that the Antichrist is to be the king or dictator of this realm. His kingdom is said to include ten nations, Daniel 7, verses 7 and 20, in Central and Southern Europe, Western Asia, Northern Africa, and England. He is not to be revealed as such until after the rapture of the church, although he may be the ruler in this kingdom before that time. He is to have more power than has ever before been exercised by any king or dictator. The unbelieving Jews in Palestine are to make a covenant with him, but after three and one-half years he breaks the covenant and institutes a fierce persecution against them. When the Jews are shut up in Jerusalem and are about to be overwhelmed, Christ returns, destroys the Antichrist and his armies in the battle of Armageddon delivers the Jews and sets up his millennial kingdom. Some say, however, that the Jews are first to be attacked by a king who invades Palestine from the north, usually said to be the king of Russia, that they appeal to the Roman dictator for help and enter into an agreement with him. According to this view, the Roman dictator goes to the aid of the Jews. The armies are drawn up on the plains of Esdraelon, the scene of so many past battles, and in the ensuing battle, the Antichrist is victorious. This, however, leads on shortly afterward to a war against the Jews, which is climaxed by the Battle of Armageddon. At that moment, Christ returns, overthrows the Antichrist, delivers the Jewish people, and sets up his millennial kingdom. In either event, the Antichrist still is in the future and will not be manifested until the church has been removed at the rapture. Many post-denominationalists also believe that a personal antichrist is to appear in the last days, 
Some hold that he will be a political ruler. Others identify him with the Pope or the line of Popes. Such was the belief of the Reformers, and it continues to be held in the Lutheran Church even to the present day. All of these likewise believe that he will be destroyed at the second coming of Christ. In view of the rather elaborate programs that have been built up around the person and work of the Antichrist, it may come somewhat as a surprise to find that there are but four verses in Scripture in which the word Antichrist occurs. Other alleged references such as the man of sin mentioned by Paul, the beast or the false prophet mentioned by John in Revelation, and the little horn mentioned in Daniel 7 are such only by inference. The verses that mention Antichrist are as follows. 1 John 2:18. Little children, it is the last hour, and as ye heard that Antichrist cometh, even now have there arisen many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last hour. 1 John 2:22. Who is the liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, even he that denieth the Father and the Son. 1 John 4, verse 3 And every spirit that confesseth not Jesus is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it cometh, and now it is in the world already. 2 John, verse 7 for many deceivers are gone forth into the world, even they that confess not that Jesus Christ cometh in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. In the first place, we notice that the word antichrist, as here used by John, is applied to many persons existing in the first century. He says clearly that even now have there arisen many antichrists. And concerning these, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they all are not of us. 1 John chapter 2 verse 19 In other words, the antichrists of John's day were Christian apostates, those who had forsaken the church and who were teaching false views concerning our Lord's person. The distinguishing mark of the antichrist or an antichrist says John, whether an individual or a class of individuals, is the denial of the essential deity of Christ. Those who so denied him reduced him to a mere man, perhaps a great and good man, but still only a man. The denial of his deity was especially heinous because on that fact depended the entire fabric of man's salvation and of God's redemptive plan. To strike at the deity of Christ is to strike at the very heart of the Christian system. Hence such deniers are branded as liars, deceivers, false prophets, and antichrists. 1 John 2.19 makes it clear that they were men who had gone out from the disciples, that is, apostates and heretics who had deserted the church and were opposing it. In this same context, John also contrasts the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, 1 John 4, verse 6, indicating that in some instances the spirit of Antichrist is not necessarily personal. Briefly, we may say that anyone who opposes Christ and his kingdom, any opposition to the person and work of Christ, is Antichrist and Antichristian. 
This spirit is at work in the world today, and it was already at work in John's day. Notice, too, that the American Standard and King James versions do not capitalize the word Antichrist, indicating at least that in the opinion of the translators, it was not the name of one particular individual. In the main, however, the Antichrists of whom John wrote were those who denied the true deity or the true humanity of Christ. The scriptures teach clearly and repeatedly that Christ is truly God and that he is also truly man, one who had come from heaven, who lived a perfectly normal life among men for a period of 33 years, who really died, arose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and who will come again in his glorified resurrection body. There were, says John, many who denied that teaching in his day. He does not point them out as atheists or infidels or pagans, but as false prophets, liars, deceivers, those who had been within the church but who now were denying its doctrines. In John's day and in every generation since, there have been many antichrists. As John uses the term, every person or thing that is opposed to Christ is antichrist. Certainly it is not confined, if indeed it has any reference at all, to one particular person who is to appear in aggravated form just before the coming of Christ. Too much is read into these verses when that meaning is placed upon them. The fantastic links to which some premillennialists go, however, and the detailed events which they believe they are able to foretell, are well illustrated in the following exposition by George W. Beckwith. The dictator will increase his activities rapidly during the tribulation period after he breaks the covenant with the Jews. He will carry his conquest into Egypt, Daniel 11, verses 42 and 43. This will be the start of his last campaign. The king of the south will come against him, and the beast will conquer. He will conquer all of the Mediterranean countries except Edom, Moab, and Ammon, Daniel 11, 41. These nations will be a place of refuge for the remnant of the Jews. The northern confederacy, he continues, also is preparing for conquest while the beast of the Roman Federation is conquering around the Mediterranean Sea with his eye on Palestine. Russia and Germany, as well as all the other countries of the earth, also have their eyes on Palestine. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, 
in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.